The Gucci Girl, Prada Professional, Coach Queen, or Target Trendsetter. No matter how you describe her, she's the most powerful consumer in the country. Cranberry Radio proudly presents Her Strings. Join marketing to women expert Maria Retan, chief storyteller at Styled Retail, as she chats with those in the know so that your business can grow. Now, please welcome our host of Purse Strings, Maria Retan. Good afternoon and welcome to Purse Strings. I'm Maria Retan. Thanks so much for joining me today. You can catch Purse Strings every Tuesday at 3 o'clock Eastern Time. Each and every week, you'll learn how you and your company can corner the market on the most powerful consumer in the country, the 51% of us who control more than 80% of all the spending, the woman. Well, first up, one of my favorite topics, boomer consumers. Uh, Mark Bradbury with Engage Boomers put out a piece that I found to be really fascinating on this shift in marketing of mainstream brands to boomers and what's really happening as a result of some pretty big misses. Um, Mark talks about having conversations with a bunch of brands who have said that they're very worried about their sales that are slipping. And what they found after investigating kind of the reason for those sales losses is losses in boomer consumers. Now, a lot of people have always thought boomer consumers consumers would be extremely loyal. What we're finding is that's really not the case. Um, According to GFK MRI, they've shown that literally hundreds of CPG brands have lost 20% or more of their boomer business just in the past five years. Um, Mark's calling it an epidemic. Um, What's happening is some of these brands are converting boomers to other brands in their line, but that's really overall not the case. So Danon, for example, is making up for losses in its Activa and Light and Fit brands because they've switched users to Activa Greek Light and Fit and Oikos brands. But many, many brands are not converting these consumers to any other brands. Insurance agencies seem to be doing pretty well. Geico especially has resonated with boomers. Uh, P&G back in 2017, oh, that would be this year, wouldn't it? Um, They really put an effort in increasing their business with empty nester boomer women. And they've really been elevating their everyday brand products. And the way they've done that is they've done ads in traditional mass media, number one. They've gone online, had an aggressive online strategy um, to engage empty nester boomer women. Uh, They've built a community around those women and they're offering promotion. And we know that Promotion will get most consumers, not just boomers, but most consumers off the dime uh, to try something new. So they're offering significant savings and they're combining that with content as well that speaks to boomer women, or at least they think so. You may have checked out Volkswagen's ads. Really, I love these. They're multi-generational ads showing a family traveling across America. And according to Volkswagen, they have really been wanting to show a full family brand. So not just mom and dad and kids, but mom, dad, kids, and grandma as well. Um, So these are some brands that um, are doing fairly well. Uh, We know that in order to appeal to boomers, it's almost like appealing to any other customer out there. You know, you have to understand what it is that they value, what they need, what their priorities are. 
what their emotional triggers are, according to Mark. You have to use this knowledge to develop communications that speak to them. And you need to look like a brand that's for them, for goodness sake. Many of these boomers don't feel like there's brands for them anymore that aren't speaking to them. Um, and you need to show up where they are. So whether it's social or mass media, you need to be there. So um, you definitely want to be following that. If you're not um, got boomers in your repertoire, you really need to consider it. They are the largest consumer population out there. Our first profile today is the Nicole Miller Networker, a woman in her late 40s to 50s, self-employed, has a small to mid-sized business, uh, making more than 60K a year. Her kids are in high school or college. Uh, she's influenced by fashion, likes to stand out in the crowd, consider herself to be ambitious and motivated, uh, lives in the moment, though, and takes advantage of life. She values quality things, and she's willing to pay for those, but she's also open to trying new things, um, very much likes to experiment uh, with new brands, will shop new stores. So at retail, she's shopping Nine West, Williams-Sonoma, Bloomingdale's, Calvin Klein and Nordstrom. She's driving a Cadillac, a Toyota, a Volvo, a Lexus, and a Lincoln. And uh, her media choices, she is reading a mix of Money Magazine, Better Homes and Gardens, In Style, First for Women, People, Arc Digest. You can see she's all over the map. Um, on cable, she's viewing HGTV, HBO, Food Network, and TLC. Well, my guest today knows a lot about women, um, but that's not really why I have her on today. It's just part of why I have her on today. Kelly Baker is the editor of Women in Higher Education, which is a feminist newsletter in its 26th year. Its goal is to enlighten, encourage, empower, and enrage women on campus. I love that. She's also a freelance writer with a religious studies PhD who covers topics like religion, higher ed, gender, labor, motherhood, and popular culture. She likes to be called an essayist though, and she has regular columns in many, many publications uh, and has written for the New York Times, The Atlantic, uh, Rumpus, um, Religion, Dispatches, and more. She's also an author. Uh, she has written a book called The Zombies Are Coming, The Realities of the Zombie Apocalypse in America Culture, uh, but it's her book on the KKK, which is why I have her on today. Gospel According to the Klan, the KKK's Appeal to Protestant America, 1915 to 1930, uh, with what's happened in Charlottesville and what happened in Boston and really what's happening today in American culture. I felt that this was a topic we really had to address on Purse Strings, and I'm thrilled to have Kelly Baker on the program to really take a deep dive into some of these important topics facing our country and our world. So stick around. Purse Strings returns with Kelly Baker in just a moment. Purse Strings. We'll be right back after a word from our advertisers. Cranberry Radio is your new destination for education, entertainment, and engagement. Get educated and entertained by our panel of on-air experts and peers. And engage with us anytime by following us on Twitter, Facebook, Google+, and LinkedIn. So you can reach us before and after every program. Located on our new social shareable live streaming player. Access the new Cranberry Radio live stream player at our website, cranberry.fm. Looking for a white-label SEO and social platform for your clients? Think eBrands. Free and unlimited SEO audit reports. eBrands. Premium Facebook apps and welcome page creators. eBrands. 
Twitter management app, analytics, and mobile site generators. eBrands. Let eBrands manage your search and social media campaigns and give you and your clients access to their white-label dashboard, which have great reports that will wow your clients and deliver great ROI and results. Try eBrands for 30 days. Go to eBrandsWithAZ.com or call 1-866-625-5717. That's eBrandsWithAZ for eBrands. Is your website hacked? Is your website displaying error messages or loading slowly? Even if there are no signs of malicious activity, your site may still be compromised. Websites, like cars, require regular maintenance to perform at their best and not leave you stranded. At Fjord, our website maintenance experts can help you assess which one of our maintenance plans will best support your needs. Visit FjordDigital.com or call 612-877-3840 and get the support and protection your website and business deserve. That's F-J-O-R-G-E digital.com. Her Strings is back with the inside track on today's women. Once again, here's Maria Retan. Welcome back to First Strings. My guest today is Kelly Baker. She's the editor of Women in Higher Education, which is a feminist newsletter in its 26th year. Congrats. She's also a freelance writer who has a Ph.D. in religious studies, and she has covered a myriad of topics in her career, including religion, higher education, gender, labor, motherhood, and pop culture. She also is an essayist, and in fact, that's what I hear she likes to be called, um, and a trained historian and reporter. She's known as well for her books, uh, Gospel According to the Klan, The KKK's Appeal to Protestant America, 1915 to 1930, as well as one of my favorite titles, The Zombies Are Coming, The Realities of the Zombie zombie Acopolypse in American Culture. Um, I'm excited to have Kelly on today because there's a lot going on in our world that I think um, uh, Kelly could maybe help us parse out a little bit. Kelly, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'll try to help us work through <laughs> all of those topics. I appreciate that. I don't know that any one person has all the answers, but <laughs> at least over the next 20 minutes, you, you you will hopefully shed some light at your point of view. And I'm sure you have a strong point of view. Uh, you know, it was interesting. You came to my attention because I, um, I subscribe to uh, a newsletter. And of course, you were featured in there as an expert to be able to address uh, the white supremacy rally that happened in Charlottesville, Virginia. And that's... Um, you know, and from the time I first became aware of your expertise to today, so much has even happened and changed with that situation, especially with Trump reversing kind of his stance on that rally and all the CEOs jumping uh, committee ships and his own party criticizing him. And it's it's just kind of been a wild ride. Uh, you are indeed an expert in white nationalism. In fact, you've been researching this for more than a decade. Are you surprised by what happened in Charlottesville? Are you surprised by what this administration's response has been to it? Uh, so my answer to that's complicated. It's sort of a yes and sort of a no. Um, Charlottesville did take me by surprise um, to see all these um, young white guys marching with tiki torches, very reminiscent of 
the 1920s Klan, which I primarily study, um, that it seemed like so evocative of a previous moment. So it did catch me a little bit off guard um, to see those images and to follow those that news story and um, the sort of tragedy that unfolded with Heather Heyer. Um, but I wasn't really entirely surprised by Trump's reaction to this. Um, it's been clear to me since at least March of 2016, if not earlier, that some of um, his speaking points were similar to the white nationalists that I study historically, um, that he seems to talk to this group and do things um, that this group appreciates. Um, these groups, anyway, it's a large movement. It's hard to describe them just under one banner. Um, but I think uh, I wasn't entirely surprised that he, when had pressure sort of put on him, that he reversed that statement um, and that it seemed more like he was trying to um, shift the blame of what happened in Charlottesville, right, to other people besides the white nationalists that were there. Yeah, right. And were you surprised at all by people's reaction to him, maybe, more appropriately? Kind of this, um, especially what happened in Boston, right? And, and Right. Yeah. I mean, t- talk a little bit about that reaction. Yeah, no, I mean, one of the things that's heartening to me about this, if, if you can find a silver lining in this, and I try to find silver linings, um, basically so I can get out of bed in the morning. But um, yeah. for me, it's one of those where I'm very heartened to see all the counter protesters. So the images of Boston, where you have the small group of white supremacists surrounded, right, by thousands of pro- counter protesters who are saying, no, we actually don't stand for white supremacy. We don't stand for hate. Um, th- those are remarkable images and they're very, very powerful. So for me in this whole thing, I've been watching the sort of pushback to Trump, the pushback to the alt-right and other white nationalist movements. And and that makes me feel a little bit better about where we are. Um, I think there are other sort of things we can talk about, um, about the staying power of racism in American culture and sort of larger historical arguments. But it's very nice for me to see that people are so willing to say, no, this is not what we stand for. This is not what we're doing. Um, and are showing up with their bodies in protest, right? Um, which is a pretty powerful way to express that you're just not going to stand for it. Um, and so it, so it is kind of, I was very happy to see those sort of reactions coming after Charlottesville um, and to see the sort of activism online too, on Twitter and Facebook of people that are just declaring, right, that this is not acceptable behavior and that we're not going to stand for it. Yeah. Well, and it rem- it's reminiscent to me a little bit, not that I'm trying to equate uh, this, this vehement level of racism to misogyny, but what happened right after the election, right, with mm-hmm. the, the, the march on Washington with, with women. It's just that um, I, too, uh, was thrilled to see this mass reaction saying, this is not okay, and this not in my country. And I think that um, hopefully those are the images that our children will take away from this. I have two kids. I know you have children as well. And it's concerning to me, um, especially as a woman from the South, mm-hmm. to see these things still so pervasive. I mean, you wrote the book on it. It's called The Gospel According to the Klan, The KKK's Appeal to Protestant America. And I, I would imagine that it's still fairly entrenched in the South. And you've talked about the origins of white religious nationalism and how it's still kind of around. So, you know, do you feel like we're seeing a resurgence or has it always been there at this level? but now these individuals feel like it's okay to come out into the light. 
Yeah, I think there are a couple things going on there. Um, I think we see a new visibility of white nationalism right now. I think that after the lead up to the presidential election last year and then the response to the presidential election, I feel like a lot of white nationalists feel like their guy got in the office and that allows them to be in public spaces, right? It allows them to sort of act in the way that they do. Um, and I feel like media has shifted to that, right? That we're going to pay attention to white nationalists and we're going to think about this. Um, but yeah, I mean, in a certain ways, white nationalism has been with us for a very long time and probably will continue to be with us for um, a long time. It's a question of how much attention we pay to it. Um, and part of the problem here is that a lot of times when we think about white supremacist movements, um, we think that they're fringe or that it just involves Klan robes or neo-Nazis. Um, and I think these, these forms that we're now paying attention to show us that white nationalism doesn't actually mean Klan robe or neo-Nazi. It can mean a variety of people who, you know, are wearing polos and khakis so that it's not that sort of limited vision that we have of what racists look like sort of stereotypically, but that this white nationalism and this understanding of America as a nation for white people or white people should dominate is an idea that has some staying power and that um, has gone through a number of different cycles um, in our history. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, I do believe there are cycles to this, you know, um, back in the Gosh, it must have been the early 2000s, late 90s. I was a news director in Louisville, Kentucky, and we were doing a series on the Klan. Um, KKK at that time had decided that they were going to do three marches in the three days, and it was supposed to be a show of force. And I wanted to understand kind of the mind of the modern KKK, if you will. And I had sent my crew up. It was in Indiana, um, small town Indiana, to talk to the Grand Dragon of the KKK. And that became really one of the more horrific times of my career because I had a photojournalist and a reporter held hostage uh, by gunpoint uh, by the Grand Dragon and his team. And they um, were trying to take the interview tape away after the interview had concluded. And I remember having a conversation with the Grand Dragon, like, I could even talk sense into the Grand Dragon, right? Mm -hmm. And and trying to explain that this was free speech and we don't hand over our tapes. That is not something that we do in this country. And, um, and anyway, he did not like that response. And ultimately, um, he did let my crew go, but he retained the tape. Um, it was nice to see that justice did reign. However, he was put behind bars Um you know, because he basically held people against their will. So, but justice isn't the outcome every day. And um, I was in the position in that particular moment to try to fight the good fight, but we Americans had the opportunity every day, I think, to combat racism in, in small ways and big ways. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what you recommend for us to try to combat this racism, no matter how it shows up, whether it shows up as religious, religious intolerance or misogyny or hate. Um, talk a little bit about how you combat that, because clearly we haven't done a good job at quelling it. Right, very much. right, right. No, I mean, and I think, I think there are a lot of strategies, um, large and small, right, that we can take on here to do this so that we see counter protesters, right? We see people calling this out online. We um, have a whole bunch of activists at the front lines who are pointing this out to us and letting us know when this stuff happens. Um, more and more, I'm convinced that 
the kind of small acts are what I try to pay attention to and try to get my kids to pay attention to so that I want to model the kind of behavior of interaction, right, about how we're going to handle these topics. And I feel like this, a lot of this can happen on this sort of interpersonal level before we get to these sort of large marches and these other sorts of things. So that one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately, um, and I'm thinking about this because of Gene Demby at NPR's Code Switch, who did a series of tweets about like dinner table norms, right? So if someone at your dinner table makes a racist comment, right? Like how do you, how do you respond? Right. And one of the ways that you respond is that you model that it is not publicly acceptable, right. Mm -hmm. To say these things or to act in these ways. Um, and I feel like there, there are ways in which we can kind of like shift people to make them realize that publicly, this is not acceptable behavior. This is not the way we're supposed to act. Um, now, that doesn't solve the large sort of structural problems, but it makes public space a little bit safer, right? If we're telling people that I know, like, there's visible white nationalism right now, but we're just not going to tolerate this, right? I think it also helps to tell better stories about American culture so that we need to move away from these stories that focus on white men as presidents and all these other sorts of things. And they were, right? There's no way around this. But we need to tell more of those stories um, that uplift other peoples, right, other bodies, so that we need to be really honest about what slavery looks like. We need to be really honest about what the opposition to the civil rights movement looked like. Um, we need to think about the fact that these hate groups exist again and again and again in American culture. So part of that is like, how do we tell more complicated stories where we aren't surprised, right, because we know this is the kind of terrain that we inhabit um, and to push against those those kind of progressive narratives about, you know, like that we're about religious freedom and we don't have racism when we know that this is not the case, right? Like we have all these news stories that show us um, that uh, the reality of both of those are complicated. Uh, and so to kind of push against that and to think through um, what kind of stories we celebrate and which kind of stories we are nervous about and maybe don't talk about and really thinking through like, why are we nervous and what can we learn from these if we have a better rounded sense of the sort of violence and tragedy that goes along with our history too. Mm -hmm. Right. And we, and we are in control of telling those stories. You know, I think right. a lot of people feel powerless, mm -hmm. uh, but we really aren't powerless and to take back our stories that we feel should be told. I think that's wonderful advice. Speaking of stories, um, you're not only an expert on white nationalism, but also zombies, which I found to be a fascinating <laughs> combination. Way. I was like, huh? What? You authored the book, The Zombies Are Coming. Um, clearly, we as a country have been fascinated by the ruin of society. I mean, whether it's been vampires or zombies or whatever. Um, do you believe it's because it seems all too real these days that the a, a couple of, well, I can't say it now, but the end of the world is is maybe on its way? So I think there is an appeal right now. I mean, I, one of the things I tracked is like leading up to the election was the number of people that were talking about how we were like at the end of days, right? Like on Twitter, you know, people that are like apocalypse watch and this sort of thing. So I think in a lot of ways that um, we're in a moment that feels kind of apocalyptic, right? Um, that, you know, like if you turn on NPR, they're talking about nuclear weapons in North Korea, right? Or right. We're looking at what's going to happen with global climate change if we have a president that doesn't, an administration that doesn't take this seriously. So I feel like we are in kind of a moment where 
these stories have appeal in a way mm-hmm. <laughs> that maybe they didn't, you know, a couple of years ago. But I think Americans are just really good at this too. Like Americans love doomsday scenarios. I mean, um, and, and sort of imagining the ruin of the world and then what's left and what you can kind of create um, later. And and I think that's kind of part of, and that's how I got into it is I'm interested in like, why do people want the world to end, right? Like, why aren't we watching The Walking Dead on television when there are so many other options? Um, and so that kind of like, what, what does this do for us in some sort of way? And I think it's always kind of a commentary on what makes us nervous about now, right? So what are the things right now that are really working on our anxiety and really causing us stress and uh, making us see? So that it feels like an outlet, <laughs> Right, right. You can watch The Walking Dead and see people survive, or you can pick up dystopian young adult literature and sort of, you know, move through with um, a Katniss Everdeen, right, as she sort of survives these really um, terrible scenarios. So I think I think there is that way in which it is a release, but also it's always commentary on what is happening to us and and how we're supposed to react to that, um, you know, um, or how we should maybe even act to that, react to that. And ultimately that we can survive it, right? Because I think uh-huh. there's many people out there who are like, we're going down. This is, right. this is it, <laughs> yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. No, it is, it is this really interesting thing where when I used to teach students about these apoc- these different kind of apocalypses, all my students were convinced that they would be the survivors. And I was always like, do you not like read this as closely as I do? I mean, like a lot of people go down, but we <laughs> always sort of imagine ourselves as the ones that are going to pick up the bow and arrow and somehow be suddenly be able to forage and use these <laughs> weapons. Um, so yeah, I think that's part of it too, is this like, maybe I will be one of the survivors. Um, I, you know, I have like no weapons training. I drive a little <laughs> tiny SUV. Like I feel like I'm a goner. You're going but, down. Yeah, you're going down. <laughs> But I do believe that that's hopeful, right? And it, and I think that that makes me happy that we're hopeful, at least, that we might survive somehow, right. some way. And I think when we lose hope is when we're really in trouble. So I, I see that as a positive for sure. <laughs> um, well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I, I want to talk to you about Women in Higher Education, a feminist newsletter, and, and kind of how that came about and how you've sustained it for all these years. So stick around, everyone. I'll be back with Kelly in just a moment. Her strings. We'll be right back after a word from our advertisers. Hi, I'm Montel Williams. Most of you know me as a talk show host, but I'm also an author, actor, single father of four, avid snowboarder, and I'm also a medical marijuana patient. Living with multiple sclerosis, I'm in pain every day. Medical marijuana is my last resort, and it helps me when all other drugs have failed. If you'd like more information about medical marijuana, you can contact the Marijuana Policy Project at mpp.org or call 1-877-JOIN-MPP. How much are your best ideas worth? PriorThings.com gives you an added layer of protection for all of your intellectual property, ideas, and creative things. New business idea, pitch deck, PowerPoint presentation, song lyrics, source code, killer blog posts, we help you protect it all. How do we do it? We use the same technology platform that secures transactions for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Learn more at PriorThings.com. Check out exclusive listener pricing for Cranberry Radio listeners by going to bit.ly slash Circle. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. 
TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. Her Strings is back with the inside track on today's women. Once again, here's Maria Retan. Welcome back. I've been chatting today with Kelly Baker. She's the editor of Women in Higher Education, also a freelance writer and essayist and author of two books that seem extremely relevant right now, Gospel According to the Klan, the KKK's Appeal to Protestant America, as well as The Zombies Are Coming, The Realities of the Zombie Acopolypse, I still can't say that, in American culture. And we have been talking about Charlottesville, Boston, um, kind of what's led to these clashes that we're seeing become even more angry and vehement and what can we do as individuals to try to combat that in our everyday and then you know what does it mean that we're fascinated with the end of the world coming what does that mean and it's not all bad Um, there's actually some good there Uh, but we're going to switch gears and talk about women in higher education congratulations you're celebrating 26 years of that feminist newsletter that's that's exciting yeah, I can't take all the credit for that. I'm I've only been <laughs> I've only been an editor for a year now. I've written for Women in Higher Ed for a few years now, um, but the um, owner founder of that um, thought there was a need for a feminist newsletter that paid attention to women in higher education from students and professors and instructors and graduate students to the sort of staff and administration um, level. And so I've just kind of inherited this great newsletter. (laughs) (laughs) Lucky you. Lucky me, right? I inherited this great newsletter um, that I now am sort of steering the ship in a way that I hadn't been previously. Well, congratulations. I think it's wonderful that still after 26 years, people are finding value with this. And I would imagine now more than ever, it's of value. I mean, there's so many topics that are changing on college campuses today. I'm preparing to send a daughter off to college in a year, you know, and I I look back on some of the topics that were relevant when I was in college, and we're not that far apart. Um, do you feel like um, the topics that are being discussed on college campuses today that we've made some advancements on behalf of feminists out there everywhere? No, I think, I think there are, I mean, there are clearly advances. Um, you know, it's one of those things where women out-earn men at all degree levels. Um, so clearly there are women on campus, there are women getting degrees and these sorts of things. Um, but we still have like lingering issues that we haven't quite worked out. Um, one of the things that my newsletter follows is issues of campus sexual assault, right? And how complicated um, that arena is and how quickly things seem to change depending on which presidential administration we are Mm -hmm. under. Um, And also the sort of concerns about the fact that we're producing these talented, educated um, women, but they aren't necessarily moving through the workplace at the rate that we might have expected, right? So that there are these lingering issues of sexism that women still face in the workplace, um, that we also address, um, that, that also happens on campus with, um, uh, who ends up as professors, right. And whether women are able to sort of move through those ranks. Um, so I feel like our newsletter is a combination of 
us showing amazingly talented women and profiling them who have carved out spaces for them in higher ed and are doing it to help other women and to sort of create um, new communities. At the same time, I feel like I'm on the sexism beat <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> all the time, you know, that I'm like, oh, it's another day cataloging sexism. What will it be? Um, and that, and that's kind of the exhausting part of it. But um, it's nice to see that there are so many women that are determined to make these changes and are committed to that and are doing this with their careers and then helping other women as well. Yes, I'm very thankful for that. And all those issues that you talk about, we talk a lot about here on Purse Strings because you can't market to 51% of the population and be sexist and right. marginalize women. I mean, you're just not going to be successful. So, um, and, and if you can't hire women and facilitate women to the highest of levels, again, you're not going to be successful. So, right. um, yeah, we talk a lot about that. And, and so thank you for championing that uh, in higher ed, especially on behalf of my daughter as she enters her college career and has to face these kinds of things, not from the kitchen table anymore, as we discuss it, but in real life. Um, And, you know, you, you thought at one point that you would be going into, well, you did go into academia Mm -hmm. and, and you thought that that was going to be your career forever. And, but you switched gears and you became a full-time author and essayist and editor. Talk a little bit about what happened there. Yeah, I um, went into graduate school thinking I was going to be a tenure-track professor at a college or university, and I happened to graduate in 2008, exactly at the time of the Great Recession. (laughs) And so um, job opportunities that had existed before then pretty much stopped existing. And by the time that there were jobs again in my field, I had been on the market for years and um, things had kind of shifted in a way. I had one kid, I had another kid on the way. Um, And so it just seemed to be unattainable to me to find that tenure track job that would have given me some security. And I didn't necessarily want to keep doing the kind of adjunct temporary work that I was doing as an instructor. Um, So I decided to take a year off to figure it out. Um, That year turned into two, which is what happens when you have a small infant. Um, And then I kind of accidentally started writing about my experience. It was me trying to figure out like what had happened, right? Like, can I understand what has happened to me? And um, writing has always been sort of the way that I process things. Um, And so I kind of fell into freelancing (laughs) without (laughs) intending to and um, realized that I really enjoyed it um, and that there were things to say about higher education and there were things to say about gender in higher education. But also there were things to say about religion in public that I could do because of my PhD training. And so I built that career from there, um, discovered that I'm actually a good editor too. Um, Again, I wish I was more intentional about this. I wish I could have said like, I decided to be this, but but discovered I was actually a very good editor as well. And um, that was able, that sort of talent led me to the position that I have now with women in higher ed. Um, And so that I'm still able to do writing and still do the stuff that I care about. Um, But I also am able to sort of curate this really cool, um, newsletter that like hits all the things that I care about in higher education. Um, so yeah, it was, it's definitely not what I imagined for myself. Um, but I continually realized that my imagination is maybe not so good (laughs) when 
when it comes to me. It's going to be good when it comes to other people, but maybe like I short sell myself. I don't know. Well, it sounds like uh, what you imagined is actually, it's better than what you imagined. And you've been able to curate this really great career for yourself where you get to do a a lot of what you really love. And you documented that journey of that two years of trying to figure all that out in a memoir, which I think is fabulous that at your age, you've written a memoir, but I think that we can all learn, right, from people's journeys, and it's called Grace Period, a memoir in pieces, and, you know, in that, you talk about how it wasn't always a pain-free journey, right, and uh, what do you hope women out there can take from your experience along the way there? Yeah, what I want, what I wanted all readers to realize, and I think especially women, is that life hands us a whole bunch of stuff that, doesn't fit with us type A planners, right? You know, like I had a spreadsheet of like, this is what this is going to be, right? And I kind of imagined that I could will myself into (laughs) the kind of career in life um, that I wanted. And I I think there are a lot of people that imagine that um, and that we don't have control over these things. And what we have to learn is sometimes that stuff that feels like the ultimate failure, right? That we've just not like lived up to our potential or we haven't done the things that we thought we were going to do, that those are really moments of possibility so that we can say, actually, what would happen if I did something differently? Um, And so I feel like I learned more from those like abject failure (laughs) that I talk about in this memoir where like I kept trying things and kept not it kept not working um, than I ever did when I thought I was just kind of skating by, right, with success. Um, and I was able to really say, like, what matters to me? And that I hadn't really sat with that feeling or that thought um, in a sustained way. And I was kind of forced to. And it meant that I could say, actually, there are things that I care about in my life that are not being reflected <laughs> in uh-huh. a current career choice. And so I can try something new. And um, that was remarkably terrifying. Um, and, but it, but it worked for me. Like once I was able to realize that um, trying something new didn't mean my life had ended, <laughs> right? Or it didn't right. put me in like physical jeopardy. I don't know what I imagined, but um, that you could sort of do this and, um, and that we can sort of craft our lives with what we're handed Um, and that we don't have to stay stuck in something that doesn't work. Um, and I think that was the hardest point for me is realizing that if something's not working, you don't have to stay there. Like you can leave. And that I was like, oh, that's revelatory. Like why why don't I understand this? Um, and part, you know, uh, and part of it was because I was like the planning girl, right? Like this is my plan. I don't deviate from it. Um, and so to chuck that out the window was very, very scary, but was also very helpful. And freeing, isn't it? Right. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm a planner too, and I've I've had several different careers, and at one point had um, achieved a lot of success, and realized that that success wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. You know, it something to be said when you re- you reach that level in your career, and you're like, what? This isn't what I thought it was going to be. You know, it's really freeing to say I can step away from that. So I applaud you for coming to that realization and for empowering people everywhere to kind of consider what they're doing and if it's bringing them joy. And if it's not, you know, you can change and it can be better actually than what you have today. So um, I think you have a lot of words of wisdom there, Kelly, and I would love people to learn more about you. Should I drive them to your website, kellyjbaker.com? Is that the best yes, place. That's perfect. That's the best place. Um, and it has all of my social media information to you. Um, I'm a Twitter addict. It's a problem. 
<laughs> but I'm also there and you can find me there, but um, that's going to direct you to most of my writing and books and um, also my poor neglected blog, but yes. <laughs> awesome. Wonderful. Well, there's plenty of things to choose from, so I'm not worried about people not finding something they wouldn't enjoy and become a little bit more enlightened by reading. So thank you so much for being on the show today and continue to fight the good fight out there. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. This was wonderful. Take care of yourself. Have a great day. And for everyone, please join me right here for another edition of First Strings next Tuesday at 3 o'clock Eastern Time. Until then, make it a great one. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of Cranberry News Marketing and Cranberry.fm. Rebroadcasts or retransmission of this content without proper consent is prohibited 